Well, Chancey, here we are again, my friend. Hey, Brad. How are you, sir? Good to be back here on the man right before Christmas. It's good cold mornings the last couple mornings. And so, man, it has been fantastic weather since we talked to you last. We've probably got five inches of rain, turns out, in our area out in the big city of Earlton, Morrock. Oh, man. Yeah. yeah. Enough to make the creek come out. Ooh, much needed rain. I saw the river came up quite a bit as well. So, there was lots of water that got dropped north. Yes, it did. It probably pushed all the wildlife out of those bottoms. That was for sure. Yeah, I'd make them find a high spot for sure. <laughs> hey, speaking of having to find a spot, today we're going to talk about habitat. Habitat, yeah. It's absolutely concerning deer. Management of habitat is the foundation of successful deer production. I mean, it is it is the backbone of everything, habitat. Habitat management. It's basically, when you're talking about white-tailed deer, three most important things are habitat, habitat, and habitat. Absolutely. Yes. And and, and that, that's a, quite different today than what it was back before man got in this area. The habitat has changed quite a bit due to fire suppression. Yeah, fire suppression. Due to you know, uh, overgrazing or undergrazing. You know, I mean, our ecosystems, the post oak savannah here in the Blackland Prairies, they were formed by three major forces. And those forces were grazing by large herbivores such as bison and elk and pronghorn antelope and you know, even white-tailed deer to some extent, then also by fires, wildfires. The Indians would set some of them, bring in lush grass to make animals come back later, and then plus just natural wildfires. And then the third one was drought. And so those three forces shaped the ecosystem that we call the Blackland Prairie and the post oak savannah. And the removal of those forces is an unnatural sort of disturbance, and it changes plant composition and plant com communities. Well, good Lord, Chansey, look at what it's done in places like California, where they've taken one of those factors out as far as like grazing or control burning or that oh, kind of yeah. thing. Yeah, they get the, the fuel source gets so bad, so absolutely bad that the underbrush catches, and then you get a canopy fire. And then once you get a canopy fire and those Santa Ana winds and a low humidity, it gets bracing, you burn the whole forest down, and there ain't no stopping it until. You know, Mother Nature decides to put it out. Absolutely, know. yes. It, it it's kind of kind of the way it's it, it's designed. Where all these parts of this system are designed to work together, and when they don't, yes, we have disasters. Yeah, and you know, I mean, I understand as we as human beings, we don't like fire, we don't like smoke. Fires are dangerous; they can burn your house down. But they're absolutely necessary in ecosystems. Well, Smokey the Bear said they were. Yes, <laughs> well, yeah. I remember. I gotta say this because it's actually a unique story. When I was taking fire ecology when I was in graduate school, Doctor Backus, he's who was my major favorite professor up there. I, I ended up going to graduate school mainly because I wanted to take every class that that man taught because he was just absolutely brilliant. But in fire ecology class, I remember we were talking, this was in 2004. So just, just do the math there, 2004. We were talking about the forest ecosystems in California and everything, and then also, you know, applying it to the Black Land Prairies and even in to some of our areas here that are wooded and forested areas. I remember him talking about the fuel source in Bastrop, Texas, and he said in 2004, or five, in 2005, it was before 2006, he said Bastrop, Texas is a ticking time bomb. It's not if, it's when. So and what year was this? That was in 2005. And look at what happened in 2011. Oh, my goodness. Bastrop. That was a terrible drought. Yeah. We had a terrible drought that year. Yeah. Dried everything out. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, wildfires followed, didn't they? Yes. And then, you know, that was a... You know, I mean, it got a canopy fire over there and it burned the whole forest down, you know, because there was a fuel source that had been built up and built up and built up, you know, for so long. But now, you know, the Texas Forest Service and Parks and Wildlife, they're managing that 
that area very well now, putting back. They're using prescribed fires, trying, and they're starting to get quail back in that area, in those around bass traps. I was planting native grass last winter. I was talking to the biologist out there, and he's like, man, we're getting quail back here. You know, the savannas, it's getting a savannah, a little blue stem savannah underneath these pine trees. They're burning regularly. They still have some cultural issues about burning that they have to deal with being in town. But, uh, you know, they look at it now. This place is going to burn one way or the other. Yes. Either they're going to burn it and manage it, control burn, or it's going to burn one day like it did in 2011. So, you know, that's where the system comes in. And where we are as human beings, managers, to strike that balance that we keep talking about between the needs of wildlife and the needs of people. Absolutely. That kind of goes into saying that those those types of things are what create this ideal habitat. Of course, now everything has changed in the world a little bit now from what it was back before so many people were here. But there's still the same four limiting factors. Regarding habitat? Regarding habitat yeah. now that there was all along. Oh, all along. So when you're, we're talking about habitat, for any animal, any wildlife species, you know, we're focusing on deer, so we're just going to kind of use them to tweak. There's basically they the needs are relative and site specific. They deer thrive in many different habitat types, but there's fundamental requirements that are called limiting factors. And these limiting factors, the four big ones or main ones, are food, cover, water, and space. Those four limiting factors, and the reason they call them limiting factors is because a limiting factor, consider it, it would be something like it's, it's a weak link. It's that critical to survival of an animal or species. An example of a limiting factor would be severe drought or habitat destruction. But the main ones that every wildlife species needs is food, cover, water, and space. You know, I'll never forget a, in an animal nutrition class that I took at A&M. Well, it's been 20-something years ago now, Chancey, I guess, close mm -hmm. to it. I'll never forget them talking about proteins and in, in, in livestock and cattle and that type of thing mm -hmm. uh, as far as like whenever you go to and we'll get more into this later on another episode when we talk more about like like supplemental feeding if you're a bodybuilder or, or or if you're trying to put on muscle or something like that protein is important oh absolutely and proteins of course are made up of essential amino acids mm -hmm. and in cattle i think there's 16 you got like methionine you got lysine you got tryptophan which is the one that Makes you sleepy out of turkey, I believe. Uh, yeah, yeah it, it's it uh, turkey, and that is is high in tryptophan, and that's the amino acid that you get too much of it on Thanksgiving. It makes you sleepy, but so the quality of a protein is only as good as its most limiting amino acid. So you have these sixteen essential amino acids, and the reason I tell this story is because I'll never forget that professor saying to picture it like a one of those pegboard whiskey barrels. Mm -hmm. You know. Those pegboard whiskey barrels are only going to float until it reaches its shortest peg, and then water is going to start to spill in. Well, amino acids are, are similar in that way, that the quality of a protein is only as good as the most limiting amino acid. So lysine is typically your limiting amino acid. So the more balanced you get your amino acids, the more balanced you, the, the more better the protein, the, the less water gets in your barrel. Well, these limiting, these limiting factors that we're talking about today are the same thing. If, if you don't have enough of one of them, that's going to limit you. It don't matter how, if you, if you got infinite amount of water, but you've got very little food, you're only going to have as many deer in your, in your habitat sure. as there is food. It don't matter if you have as much water and cover as you need. Yeah. I mean, cause that's what we, when we start talking about that carrying capacity, you know, you can have as much cover, but if you don't have a food source to match it, you're only going to be able to grow or raise, you know, so many deer or have so many deer on your property. It's 
one of those is going to limit it. There's not enough water. There's not going to be the amount of animals that, you know, could potentially be there if those limiting factors were available and in good, what I would say, interspersed throughout the habitat. So not only is habitat has components of all those, the mixing of those components is very, very important. I don't even believe we mentioned yet what these four limiting factors are. Uh, you, food, cover, water, and space. Okay. Yeah. If, okay. So, so those, so our goal here is in our, in our deer habitat to have as well of a balanced uh, ratio, I guess, of these four things. Yes. And, you know, so let's just start with food and go into a little bit about food because just like us, you know, I mean, deer have to eat, you know. And what is a deer, Chancy? A deer is a... A deer is a ruminant. A ruminant. a ruminant. Yeah, so that has a lot to do with what they select to eat. It does, yeah. because here's what a ruminant is for, for, for those of you who don't know. Cows are ruminants, sheep, goats. Exotic deer. Exotic deer. Yeah. So it's what these ruminants are, they have a four-compartment stomach compared to a monogastric uh, like, like we are. So they have this special special digestive tract that allows them to take advantage of things that that some species can't. And so that being said, deer, that does not mean that deer and cattle are the same by any means because food passes through a deer rather rapidly. Yes. I mean, when you look at the whole list of ruminants that we're familiar with, deer, I mean, I'm, excuse me, cat from the top, say cattle, sheep, goats, exotics, and then white-tailed deer. Out of all those animals, the white-tailed deer has the smallest, what they call like rumen capacity to weight ratio. And they also have the fastest passage time. I've read and been told it's anywhere from six to eight hours. I've also heard eight to 10. And I saw one study, it wasn't a lot, that 16 hours. But let's just say, you know, it's around eight hours to 10 hours. From the time what you put in your mouth, it's coming out the other end. And that's why deer are called concentrate selectors. They have to, they walk from plant to plant and pick the very best part of, of woody species. So, that's when we're talking about food. We can break that, basically that food down into four broad categories, kind of like food, cover, water, and space. Well, with food, we've got one category is forbs. And what we consider forbs is broadleaf, herbaceous, annual, perennial plants. What we, we normally call these weeds or wildflowers. Yes, that's what we spray every spring in the pastures. <laughs> that is what we spray every spring in the pastures. But be honest with you, that is the white-tailed deer's preferred choice of food. If it was at Luby's cafeteria and it could pick anything that it wanted, it would pick forbs every time. They constitute 25 to 50 percent of a deer's diet when, you know, they're abundant. That's what the deer, and the reason is because they're high in nutrition, they're highly palatable, there's not a whole lot of cellulose in them, there's not a, like grass, not a lot of cellulose on them, and it passes during the deer. They're usually high in protein, very nutritious, and they pass through a deer rel relatively easily, and they get a lot from them. And so what are some examples of this? Forbes? Yes. Uh, any of your legumes out there, not like your woody legumes, but your wildflowers and your weeds, things, I mean, think of all your all your wildflowers, your vetches that come out there, clovers, any of that kind of stuff is what we would consider forbs. And so in plants, you have two different types Blue of plants. Vines, yes. You, you have a broadleaf, you have a grassy plant. Yeah. Yes, and, and these are the things that usually have like a broadleaf, uh, round in shape, or it's just not, doesn't look like a grass. Yeah, basically. and grasses is one of the types of food that we're going to cover. Forbes is one, but you know, we just, since we're talking about it, we'll go right to grass. I mean, for lack of a better definition, grasses are narrow-leaved, herbaceous plants with parallel veins. Now, when Chansey mentions grasses <laughs> for deer, yeah. he's not talking about coastal Bermuda or any type of Bermuda for that reason. Yeah, and in my opinion, Grasses are most, particularly native grass, they're most important for deer as a source of cover. 
for fodder. But deer okay. will utilize grass as a food source, but it's a very, very small amount of food. Like only less than 10% of their total diet is in grasses. And it's most normally always the very, very young shoots of grasses when it first starts growing or right after you burn it, you know, it starts greening up. Well, there right you good. go with burning again. Yeah. yeah. Right? It makes, you know, that's part of a lot of, a lot of uh, data suggests that the Indians intentionally burned areas to get hunting grounds so that the bison would come back in it because it was so lush. They would migrate back in because of that. And they would, there's a lot of data, especially in the Midwest, that suggests the Indians would do that. Almost like a almost like a bison food plot. Yeah, that's exactly what they're yeah. doing. Bison everything food plot. You know, yeah. it tracks it. Everything. Because if you burn, you start to get a lot of these orbs too. Yes, and all that flush yeah. and all those forbs, or they bring in the arachnids, like the baby, the little spiders and the and the beetles and the insects, the little young stuff. And that's what the turkey poults are eating. And that's what the baby quarry because they got to have protein. They're little bitty. They're growing. They're not eating much seeds. They're mostly eating protein, which is your spiders and stuff like that. Yes. So grasses, you know, like I said, deer can utilize them. You know, in the wintertime right now, you'll see deer out in the middle of a coastal field, and it's dried, and, you know, we've had our first hard freeze. They're not out there eating the Bermuda grass. They're eating all the little tiny chickweeds and the little stellarias. Oh, little henbits. Henbits and, and stuff yeah. that's coming up, right? All the little cool season stuff that's coming up, they're out there hustling those. That's what they're after. So uh, That's why they don't stay in one spot too long. No, deer, that's, you know, they, I mean, I, they, they truly are an amazing critter to watch feed in the wild. Like, not just eating corn, but if you've ever watched a deer in the wild go from plant to plant and eat stuff, it's just amazing. I mean, there was a deer that I knew in South Texas, we called him Sticker Bird, but I mean, we were watching him one year. He was going eating a prickly pear cactus, and then he would walk and pass up five or six prickly pear cactuses and go to another pear. And just start eating it. And I'm thinking, what is wrong with the other six that you just passed up? But there's something. They know. That they know. They know. They, they know what they need. And they know what amount they need. And it's just amazing to watch one eat. It's kind of like a cow. If you've ever put a cow on a brand new native pasture, it's got seed heads. And they are like a fine-tuned computer software program going through there. They're grabbing tops. They're grabbing bottoms of different species and just non-stop all all in one motion it's it's amazing to watch one graze like a diverse native prairie yes it, it really is like you said if you turn them out into to a field of, of something that's very well established and you come back the next day you'll see what the cows like and what they don't yeah like. they'll yeah. they'll have all the the fresh tender stuff eaten off uh, the, the like the real stemmy stuff will be left. Yeah, they kind of know like, well, I need a little more protein here. I eat the top of this seed head, you know, or this flower. I'll get me some carbs down here, or so you know, you know, get eat lower on this plant. They're amazing to watch, you know. I'll, I'll, they'll they'll pick and choose, you know. It's too bad we don't have that sense because we'd probably be in better shape. <laughs> yes, yes, I, it would be. I'm, you know, we may have back in the day. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe back so. Back in the day when we when Uncle Basil DeVarco was talking about people running down there. <laughs> They was in pretty good shape. They were in good shape back then. I don't think they could eat a cheeseburger from <laughs> from some restaurant and then go chase down a deer. No, no, yeah. no, they couldn't. That has changed uh, quite a bit, which we talked about in one of our earlier episodes mm -hmm. for sure. But that brings us to uh, browse. Uh, yeah, browse. So woody browse, that's another component or broad category of uh, deer food. And that's the leaves and twigs from trees or shrubs from woody species. And it comprises about 30 to 50% of their diet. It is very, wow that much yes, thirty to fifty percent throughout the year. But it's very very important. Number one, these woody plants, the browse, are important from a cover standpoint, which we'll get to. But they're also very important as a food standpoint. 
because I want to mention uh, Forbes with browser equipment. Before we do that, I want to go to one last category, and that's mast. Uh, it's a food source. And mast, and mast, all that is is the fruits and nuts of trees and shrubs. Examples are acorns, pear, tunas, persimmon fruit, you know, hickory nuts, acorns, you name it. And you know, that if you go to talking about that food group right there, we don't have a lot of that in the Blackland Prairie. No, no, we don't. We, we really don't. I mean, we've got a lot of hackberry trees out there in places, but they're small mast, you know, and I don't know. I'm sure deer will utilize it if they get down there because I know they'll browse their leaves, but a lot of coons and squirrels will get you know, a lot of hackberries and burrs before, before deer would use it. Will, we will deer eat pecans? I'm sure that they would, yeah. Uh, I've never sat there and just watched one camp under a pecan tree, but I don't see why I would. I mean, they'd have to fight through a shell, but I mean, I've seen them eat turnips and, got, you know, crunching them, crunching them, crunching would not surprise me, you know, especially if uh, they're broken or something or had bro broken some form. Yeah, I mean, an acorn, same yeah, way, you know. They, I mean, if you could eat an acorn, I guess you could eat a pecan, yeah, maybe. You know, I don't know. I've never watched a deer eat a pecan. You know, I'll be honest with you. That's a great question. I don't have the answer to. It wouldn't surprise me. You know, deer, they're an amazing critter as far as what they know, how to, like, get stuff and break stuff apart, you know, and, and, and find the good stuff to it. So it wouldn't surprise me if they do. So they're going to pick a browse first. Well, no. And the core and the categories of those four categories, Forbes, Browse, Grass, Mast, if they had their choice, they want Forbes first. But what's the problem with Forbes? Not very many of them. Well, you know, in, in wet years, we got plenty of them. They're everywhere, you know, in the spring and summer. But how many of them are in the winter? Well, that's true. You know, yeah. I mean, they're really. And they're not growing very fast. They're not growing. I mean, a lot of our little Forbes are what we call wildflowers. They come up in the fall, right? Like, you know, they do. October, November, and germinate. But they just sit there as a little rosette, winter long, and then come springtime, they sprout and put wildflowers. But the main problem with the Forbes, which is what their preferred food is, is drought. They're not, they're not dependable. They're not there every single year. So we as deer managers kind of, and, and also people that are interested in any wild, we manage and look at the woody brown. And most of those are annuals. Most of the, the forbs. forbs. Well, yeah. yeah, there's some perennial ones too. But yeah, most of what we call, you know, they don't wildflowers have, are annual wildflowers. They don't have a root system like to handle, like you said, to handle a drought. Yeah, and even I'm sure there are some perennial and even biannual forbs that they utilize. But most of them that we're talking about are annual forbs. You know, they, they, they set seed germinate, grow in one year, set seed again, you know, and then die. And, you know, I guess this is a question to ask now that I just thought about, but if you're going to plant a fall food plot, what in this area is the best thing to put in that fall food plot? Depends on your soils. Depends on your soil types. Black black dirt? Black dirt? I'll tell you, man. Um, Definitely not alfalfa. Yeah. That's the reason I, that most of these things have alfalfa in it uh, or, or have soy. Well, soybeans wouldn't be a, a yeah. cool season one, but but uh, and and it just doesn't do good in the in the black dirt where I live. Bang for your buck, I tell you. You know, wheat and oats is always a good go-to. I mean, deer use the daylights of it cheap and it works. Oh, and easy to plant. And easy to plant. Easy to find. You can, you can buy that anywhere. Yeah, I mean, and it works. But I tell you, I am really fond of uh, of a seed source. Uh, it's called Fall Deer. Uh, mix by Turner Seed, uh -huh. and it's got like twenty something different species. And I planted in Blackland and in and in the Sandy Land because something does well. It has all kinds of clovers and vetches and uh, uh, triticale and cereal rye. Uh, and if you're going to plant a food plot, I try not to plant annual rye because it can spread. But definitely plant cereal rye or something like that. But I like that mix. It's cheap to plant. 
Um, and, and it co it covers it all covers soil types. Everything soil types. So I'm not saying it like when I plant it. Yeah, turnips come up over there in sand, like where I live now. They don't get very big, but I plant it in the black land and they do really well. And it's been in my spot, you know, from noticing the those turnips, you know, if hogs don't get them, you know, the deer really start hitting them late season. They seem to really hit them, whereas they're getting all those vetches and all those beans. Like, I forget what's all in there, but. So it's a lot of different things. Yeah, variety. And that's where we go back to diversity. Variety is everything. So, you know. And the, and the plus is a lot of that stuff is good for the soils. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. yeah. A lot of, a lot of legumes. Yeah. 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 Legumes, they fix nitrogen to the soil mm -hmm. and increase the uh, nutrients for the spring or whatever follows yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, that's another thing while we're talking food. Wait, this is habitat management. <laughs> you know, probably another topic. Really important. If your wildlife is a big interest in you and also cows too, I mean, kind of work hand in hand together. You can reseed Bermuda grass fields in the winter right now in the fall, drill in, no till drilling some clovers, you know, or something like that into those fields and that'll give your give your wildlife something to eat as well as your cows you know during those years and bird clover you know usually comes back pretty good around here on its own yeah bird does for sure and man i hate in the springtime when yeah. it comes time to spray weeds you're like god i don't want to spray the weeds just yet because it's going to kill the clover you mm -hmm. know but it still seems to come back year after year after year yeah it really does it's got an incredible seed source it's a hardy stuff I don't know. I mean, I've never planted bird clover. I mean, it's, it's whatever, but it, it just comes up. Yeah, it it's just everywhere. comes up. Like those food plots, I was saying, you know, there's a lot of different species of clover, you know, that, that are very good for deer. Yeah, you can find clover just about anywhere, even in your dog's hair. <laughs> yeah. That's, clover, those that's, little birds, they will stick to anything. They will. That's how they spread in your yard if you got dogs. <laughs> I bet whoever invented Velcro did it based off of the bird they had to it is just like velcro man it yeah, sticks or a to burr. It, or a cockle burr yeah, yeah. look at those under a microscope it is cool i bet so i bet some poor guy was pulling a cockle burr out of his sock one day and was like man i should make a fastener <laughs> yeah. like this and we're gonna call it and we're gonna call it velcro <laughs> yes uh and so, uh, let's see here, Chancey. So, yeah, I mean, that pretty much covers them. Well, hold on, it don't. Well, yeah. We forgot about something that's going to lead us right into the next part oh, of yeah. this. Succulents. Succulents. Oh, yes. The, Good point. Especially, and a lot of managers now, they are kind of starting, or a lot of them do. They're considering a fifth category of food, and they call these succulents. And these are things like cactus, you know, prickly pear cactus is what they call. Because you can't really think of them as a woody plant, or I don't. I don't think of them as a woody plant. I don't but either. In South Texas, they are very, very important to white-tailed deer. I mean, I remember when I worked for a state, we would shoot deer in the summertime, you know, to study them or look at their fetuses. And a lot of them still had had lots of prickly pear pads in their room, even in wet years. So we know what they use it for, a, food, a water source, too. Prickly pear is important for a water source. Yes, which is going to be our next limiting yeah, factor we're going yeah. to talk about. Mm -hmm. But so it kind of falls as a food and a water source. Sure, prickly pear, absolutely. If, you ever, if you've ever chopped a uh, prickly pear cactus, you know that thing is full of water. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. They can withstand some, some serious conditions. When you see a a prickly pear cactus start getting shriveled you know it's dry you know it's dry <laughs> yeah. at that point yeah. and and so so it, it amazes me that a deer could just chop on a prickly pear cactus oh like it's nothing oh, i mean them, thorns are no obstacle for a deer it's uh, unbelievable i've watched those things and even you know like you get stuck by a cactus the long ones are the easy ones to get out you know the long spines and oh that's yeah the like actually we call them thorns on cat but they're not really thorns they're actually modified leaves the spines are I had no idea that was a modified leaf. Yes. All thorns are modified leaves or no, just a thorn, cactus? a thorn is actually a modified branch. 
But on a cactus, uh, like the true terminology, the botany of it, it's a spine. And a spine is a modified leaf. Uh, well, how about that? Whereas a thorn is a modified branch. So well, how about cactus that? Cactus has spines. But to get back to the really bad ones, I think their names are blockheads or I can't remember. Blockheads or something. They're like the little bitty sharp ones that you get in. Oh, we, there, that's so hard. You got to have tweezers to get out. I think we call them Christmas tree cactus. Is one. Is oh, that what you're talking about? No, like if you look, there's two different kinds of spines on a cat prick. Oh, you're talking you about the, the little long ones that you know, but then the yeah, little the tiny ones. They're like bunched up a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah so. those are hard ones to get out. Man. But I've seen them just jam packed full in deer's gums. Like know, it's nothing. nothing. Like it's nothing. And they, you know, they're healthy as all get out. And then their feet, you know, their legs, you know, their legs, you, you know, you skint deer. Their legs is just bone, you know, skin and bone right there. You grab a deer by the lower leg, right. you know, below the knee. It's all bone, but it'll just be solid thorns and. They're tough, man. I, like I said, every now and then they can get an impacted jaw, which is nasty. It's like get a hole in your cheek and food gets back there. But for the most part, no, thorns are no problem. I mean, when you think about why deer is the way it is, a concentrate selector, it has everything to do with their biology. Their rumen makes them pick certain things, but also they're adapted to walk from plant to plant and pick the very best parts. They're, they're trying to pick those apical meristems, you know, the, the best part of that plant that that's growing the growing part of the plant because it has the most nutrition yes and, and and so back to the rumen thing again i don't know exactly how many gallons that that, that a, a rumen is in a deer but i want to say in cattle it's somewhere around 40 gallons or something like that you and know, so inside these rumens is a lot of these living organisms called micro rumen and microbes sure yeah and it's what their whole purpose is well not whole purpose but one of their purposes is is to break down the, the lignans, the and, lignans cellulose. and cellulose and grass so that's why we as humans can't go outside at lunchtime and graze on the grass outside, which would be handy if we could. Sure could. Yes, it would it be handy. The sun's energy. Oh, man, I mean, yeah. And so uh, in one milliliter of fluid from the rumen of a cow, there's more microbes than there are people on the face of the earth. So it, it, wow. take that into consideration. One, one yeah, milliliter. That's a cc. That's one cc. Yeah. Yes. If you're familiar wow. with, with, with taking shots or any of that stuff, mm -hmm. a milliliter is basically almost a little bit more than a drop. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's basically all it is. And you're talking, there's that many little living organisms. You're talking in a cow, 30, 40 gallons. Yeah. I don't remember. It's been so long since I've You know, and I had a professor, Dr. Weckerly, I'm sorry, that uh, did tons of work on deer rumens, you know, and deer rumen capacity. I don't know what it is on a white-tubbed deer either. I should know that question, but I don't know it off the top of my head. But if I'll I can, find if, out. If I can figure out yeah, a way how to. I've gone through a lot of them. I wouldn't say they'd hold more than a gallon or two, you know I mean? Well, uh, you, water, when you, there's lots of papilla in there, like little fingers that help absorb. And, you know, that's one of the reasons the speed. And also I've read somewhere that deer, they have the microorganisms to break down cellulose and lignin, but not as much and not as diverse as a cow. Uh -huh. And so they, they're not as efficient. That's why they can eat some grass. But once it gets a like cell walls, think of, back to biology, cell walls, you know, plants have cell walls. Animals don't. They have cell memories. Well, those cell walls is where that cellulose gets and that lignin gets. As that grass matures and gets harder, deer just can't utilize it, whereas like a cow can. Right. And and so kind of like cows, though, deer will regurgitate and, oh, chew, yeah. and chew the They're grass a or chew whatever they've been eating a second or uh, second time. Uh, the thing about it is that, that with the deer, 
it passes through so fast that like they can't benefit from things like Bermuda grass. Yeah, I don't. Uh, a deer will starve to death on a belly full of grass, just like a goat. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. goats and and deer they'll starve to starve death on on a Bermuda grass yeah. pasture. They've got to have all these other things that we talked about. Yes, I mean a Bermuda a well manicured as much as we like to look at them. A well manicured hay field that's got a scattered post oak here and there's been herbaceous or been sprayed for weeds and everything. Just looks like a golf course. It might as well be a biological desert for any, for just about any animal. Really, you know, truly. Whitetail deer, it might as well be. I mean, it's not even good for birds. The seeds that it does make, if it does make seeds, are so tiny. Even quail and, you know, sparrows, hardly anything can utilize it. And then, you know, if it's mature, you know, deer can't really eat it. There's not a lot of diversity of insects in those places because diversity of insects diversity of animals comes from diversity of plants like i said it always comes back to habitat absolutely you know, the more diverse plants have the more niches you got when we talk about niche let's just mention it right quick a niche is basically where an animal fits into its environment what is the animal's role good definition is, is the niche is the animal's job and address some people have considered it's its purpose in life its purpose in life basically its job and address what does this do what is its role in the ecosystem you know you got decomposers you know that like uh, the perfect example of a good niche and a uh, is beaver they consider a beaver a keystone species because by the very nature of its habits it produces habitat for other animals just by the nature of a beaver being... A There's beaver. basically other animals that can't exist if the beaver didn't exist. Yeah, or they may have could, but the beaver provides habitat in abundance for them. Think of your wood ducks, think of your ponds, think of your otters, think of everything else that goes with it. And in some instances, now, today, white-tailed deer are considered a keystone species, especially in woodland areas. And they, can, they are because they get so abundant, and so many of them, by their them doing what they do, browsing the best parts of those plants, if you're taking the energy growing part of that plant off every day, every day by eating it, because when it put, or not every day, but when it puts on, bite it off again because of too many deer, it'll eventually kill that plant. In the east, in places where deer numbers are too abundant, they are changing the composition of the forest. So basically, the deer are targeting the better food species, which are your hardwoods, like your oaks and your hickories and your good food, and a lot of the other plants that they don't like as much. The deer are targeting the good ones, and they're letting the bad ones grow. And so oh, no. changing, changing the, the plant communities of those forests. And so some forest biologists over there in the east consider them a keystone species as well. And, you know, once again, we're, we're not going to talk about this a whole lot, but that's where supplemental feeding is kind of a bad thing. You know, well, yeah, once you if carrying capacity. Yeah, yeah you're I'm, increasing your carrying capacity on the feed that is now overloading your habitat. Yeah, well, because, I mean, I'm, I'm for supplemental feeding, specifically if it's within your goals and within your budget and, you know, you want to manage. Well, me too, because I own a feed store, James. <laughs> well, yeah, well, I'm, all about, I'm all about supplemental yeah. feeding, but yeah. yeah. And I am too, and I mean, and I it works, I believe. But we need to think of supplemental feeding like this it is exactly what it says. It is a supplement to a healthy, quality habitat. Think of yourself if you were an exercise fitness person, you know, and you were taking supplements. But if you were eating junk food all day and wasn't getting rest and wasn't drinking plenty of water and just living in a bad habitat, basically you're staying in the bars too much or something and not that, good yeah, that's, food. Yeah, that's no good, Jansen. You could take, you, know, <laughs> you could take all the supplements you want. That's not really helping you. It's a supplement to a quality diet. And that's what we need to look at. And, and how, where the deer get their diet? They get it from the habitat. 
Yes, and, and just to be clear, me and Chancey do not suggest anybody stay in a bar too long. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> we, would never, we would never do that, and we would never do that. We don't expect you to do that either. So, Chancey, we got to move on, okay. brother. Else we'll be here two hours again. Uh, so, water, right? Water, because we talked about cactuses being yeah, a water source. Might as well go to water and then hit cover after water. Yeah, water's not a problem where we are. No, it's not a problem where we are. I mean, we're pretty lucky. Even in drought years, you know, here it's a water for pastures and everything else. But for the most part, with deer, it's not a problem for us, you know, surface water. And deer need surface water. I've watched them too many times. They, they truly need uh, surface water. And when you think about water's the most critical nutrient for, for not only deer but for all wildlife even us yes we, yes we can't live without it they need some water and freestanding water and uh they can extract water from plant material they can like cactus like cactus they or or lush grass really lush grass like good oak green crop you know they can get stuff from that they get some water from metabolism. This is basically breaking down carbohydrates yes that is a byproduct they call byproduct. it metabolic water they can get some like that but most of it they need freestanding water, especially lactating mamas. Those, you know, when she's producing milk, and she's raising baby, needs a water. Most of the time, she, a, I recommend during your fawning, because we need to feed, like we talked about before, we need to take care of mama first. Mama and baby first, don't worry about ever. I always recommend putting a supplemental feeding station near a water source. Consumption goes up. It also helps those mamas. They don't have to travel as far, everything. Just something to think about. on. The, and, you know, that, that goes, that's kind of the same way with cattle, too. Like a lot of times people are like, hey, your cattle are eating too much mineral, this, that, and the other. Uh, well, if you put your mineral feeder farther from water, they're going to eat less mineral because it's so far away from uh, there. Yeah, yeah it, it's amazing how much water controls what everything does. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, they need it to metabolize and everything. I sure. Mean, it's, it's like the most critical nutrient we, we need. We yes. Have, you can survive a long time without food. You yes. You can't go very long without water. I don't know if this time I mentioned this or not because I should have mentioned it back with the food, but a lot of that's dependent on the soil types and all that stuff, too. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, Soils are critical. Like, for instance, I, I noticed that cattle in the black dirt probably deer the same way in the black dirt will gain a whole lot better off of the off of the grass due to there being more minerals in the in the heavier oh yeah you, actually the soil types and fertile soils good soils grow good quality diverse plants that are very nutritious and and very sought after by deer so like i know as a general rule in our neck of the woods you could probably get by easily you could a good carrying capacity a bottomland habitat can hold, you know, a deer to 10 acres. Easy. Probably a deer to six to eight on really good quality bottomland hardness. You can carry around a lot of deer. Whereas you get up in the post oak, sandy, high and dry stuff, where it's just post oak and yopon, you know, up on, or up on some type of an old dry hill that's just broomweed, you know, you might be looking at a deer to 25 acres. Because food becomes a limiting factor. The food becomes a limiting factor. And also the quality of that food. You know, in those less fertile soils. And the, exactly, we'll talk a lot about more about that later. Yeah, when we in, get to a, in another episode mm -hmm. of, of of nutrition. Uh, moving back to water. Yeah. So we have plenty of water here. Yeah. You go south of here, not so much. Yeah, and you know, in a lot of these places down in South Texas, you know, they know how important water is in West Texas. But you know, when you're thinking about white-tailed deer, you know. A good rule of thumb is you need at least a water source every 500 acres for sure, preferably much, much closer. You know, the less that animal has to travel to meet its needs, the better, in my opinion. Now, granted, there's places in South Texas that have so, so big. In West Texas, it's not even feasible to put one out that much, but uh, that many. But, you know, that's a good rule of thumb, you know, for most landowners. And out there. That's probably why in West Texas there aren't many white-tailed deer. 
Yeah, you know, it's the brush is starting to creech that way. But yeah, there's not. It's mule deer habitat out there. Yeah. I, I heard somewhere that they're following the mesquite. The mesquite the is brush. starting to grow farther and farther uh, northwest. Where? Where? Yeah, and the deer are starting to travel that way following it. I, I, I can see that. The white-tailed deer. Yeah, the white-tailed I mean, I've known for years, you know, that overlap. And, you know, that there's some hybridization that can happen. But um, now I've, I've heard it's getting worse. You know, I, I don't know much about mule deer unfortunately they're a fascinating critter i wish i knew more about well them. we didn't grow up with him no we did but i've heard that uh you know brush is encroaching westward big time mule deer you think about there's brushy draws out there but they're more of an open species when they avoid predators they're prodding you know they, they ain't running through brush whereas whitetail they're more of a brush species so as that brushing you know encroaches out west i can see whitetail deer following them and that would be a problem for mule deer yes it would right. yes and so so I guess moving back to South Texas down there, yeah. water troughs are a big deal. Water troughs are a huge deal, critical and super. I used to video around water sources in 2011, you know, just because it was so much for, fun. For those of you who don't know, we had a terrible drought. Oh, yeah. That, that was probably our last major drought, I would say. Yeah. But the one that was, I mean, we're still seeing effects from 2011 drought, I think. Well, here's what's kind of scary, yeah. Chancey. How many more people do we have in Texas now than we had in 2011? I don't know, but it, they're coming in by the millions. Yes. It feels like it. What, is, what percent of, of our population has moved here in the last five years? Uh, you know, I read that recently. Is it like, like 15%? I don't know. I just know there's lots and lots of people coming in. It really makes – I have to scratch my head because I remember in 20 years ago, you know, the governor, it was Governor Perry was talking about, man, water's a huge issue. We sure got some water problems in Texas. And now it's, oh, open the doors. Everybody come on in and nobody's saying a peep about water. Not yet. Yeah. 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 You don't miss it till it's gone. Yeah. Yeah. And it, uh, droughts come around again. Yeah. I think we're going to, we're in the verge of seeing some water wars in Texas. I think we are too. Especially in Central but... Texas and our neck of the woods. Those water wars are coming. And that should probably be another podcast. Yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but uh, back to water trolls in South <laughs> Um, we uh, the best thing to do with water trolls like if you got windmills down there let it run over man let that freestanding water is best well i think here'd be the time for me to point out too that that water height i mean water trough height is important very high especially for your fawns and Look, your young yearling deer so many people forget like even this even when people around here supplemental feed deer you forget how important it is to feed the little deer. Yes. The little fawns. You yes, know? I mean, the little ones. They need water, too. They need water, too. Yeah, so a good, you know, 18-inch trough. And, and if you can't or don't have good troughs, you know, get some dirt or some rocks, you know, or push, make a little berm up there next trough. See that done? You know, if you've all got tall water troughs. Also, you know, think about the meso mammals and the small stuff that can fall in there in your water troughs. So, all it takes is to get a cedar post and put in there. Put a cedar it, post in that water, and that way if a squirrel falls in there, swimming around, it can hop on that post and hop out of that water. It's right? basically like a pool ladder. Yeah. Like, it's thing. just like a ladder for us to get out of a pool. You put a yeah. rock. Uh, we raise chickens, and, and when you have little chicks, if you don't put rocks or something in a big water source, they'll jump in there and drown pretty easily. Mm -hmm. And the same thing happens with these water troughs, I guess. Yeah. You know. No, so, yeah, I, I just find that water troughs are really really important for wildlife especially in dry years you know just got to think you don't think how water is important that is if you've ever had bird baths and you know how to have a bird bath in your backyard when it gets dry there may be a creek you know nearby or water but 
you can fill it and put fresh water in there, or particularly if it's running, man, it's just like a magnet to birds coming in, you know. Have a little bit of fresh water that's not stagnant and running. You'll bring birds in, just wouldn't believe. It's so important. It's one of those things that, unfortunately, I think gets overlooked sometimes, even though it's probably the most important. And and back to sometimes maybe letting it overflow. Yeah, overflow. You know, that way all your little little critters and your little mammals and your little reptiles. I mean, re reptiles will utilize water as well. And it starts a, it'll start a whole new ecosystem. Yes, yeah, so like a little wetland. Yeah. And I've seen in some of those little wetland oases in South Texas just dragonflies. Like you wouldn't believe all different kinds of species of dragonflies. I don't know what they were, but I, I like nature enough. I noticed the differences in all of them. <laughs> They were just beautiful, different kinds of dragonflies, you know. So you can get all that stuff just by keeping a water source or a water feature, you know, on your landscape. I know it's not really related to deer, but just having a water feature in your yard, you know, or away from your place and kind of landscape with some native plants, you'd be surprised at the critters that you'll bring in and how much fun you'll have looking at them. And they'll really appreciate it. Yes, they will. Yes. Absolutely, they will. So water and food. Two, two main sources of life right there. Yes. But we're not done yet. No, we got two more to cover. And hey, what is it? Cover. We need to cover. Hey, we need to cover, cover. Let's cover, cover. Yeah, let's. so cover is <laughs> important because everything needs to hide. Yes, I mean, well, most wildlife species require specific types of cover and shelter. Uh, and what, what, what do they use it for? What? It's leaving space to feed and rest. Wildlife will use it to escape from predators and, and in bad weather. I mean, think about how bad it was. Last February, you know, oh, and that and that really cold from yeah, somebody. a it lot of really little grassland songbirds took in the shorts, man. That was a bad deal for them. Central Texas, they saw that we saw the coldest weather we've probably ever seen. For sure, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's documented. Yes, yeah. yes, and uh, and so so cover was very important at that time. Cover is important. That's what they need cover thermal cover to go get in there and break you know some thank god we didn't get get bad wind but still just as insulation you get enough cover it's like insulation just like grass for grassland songbirds or other species insects overwintering or even earlier chancy mentioned when me and him were talking that a cedar tree yeah. is an important cover in the winter time for 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 different birds and stuff because yeah. they've got they've still got their leaves they uh, the birds have a good place to hide. To yeah, stay eastern red cedar, like in my neck of the woods, I see in the hill country, there's ash junipers. There's too much of it. It's affecting their water uh, resources and their aquifer. Oh, you have know? you ever have you ever dug up a cedar tree? Those things have got a root system on them now. Oh, yeah, like a mesquite. Yeah, yeah mesquite. But more fibrous root type. Really? I mean, roots shallow to the ground. I mean, really mm -hmm. competing with everything. That's why sure. there's no, no grass. No grass. No, no grass growing under cedar No, tree. not in them cedar breaks. Yeah, and then also the leaves fall and just kind of breaks it. But from a cover standpoint, especially for birds, like, you know, I'll I'll go and selectively manage and cut down cedar trees, you know, but I try to leave the ones that don't bother me too much or the ones that are kind of tucked away. And then because at nighttime you start paying attention and watching your birds going to roost, so many of them are going into those cedar trees. They, they just roost in there and also protects them from rain because, you know, it, it insulates a lot of water and rainfall as well. And it's a good wind block. So those little birds you think about, they're kind of going to a state of torpor when it gets real cold at night. But, man, they have a little small animal trying to stay warm in a very cold night. So that cover is important. Yes. Important. And so that's a good one for birds. Yep. But what about for deer? Usually your bottom lands, you know, or even thicker brush areas, you know. And I've seen deer laying down out in the middle of a field just to know what their head's down and everything. But they need cover for escape from predators as well. So they need, you know, it's hard to really think a thermal cover in Texas, you know, because in our area, other than last year, it really doesn't get that cold in Texas. Right. That was a rare. 
Up north, there actually is things called deer yards, where it's blocks of timber, most of them like conifers, that the deer will travel. They kind of like migrate. I hate to say migrate, but they'll travel a long ways to get to those deer yards, and it's specifically for a thermal cover to help break them from those cold north winds, you know, and those, those bad things. But down here in Texas, you know, cover's really important for deer for escape cover from predators. You know, most of the time, you just don't see deer mostly more than a quarter of a mile away from some type of brush or some type of woodland edge or some type of edge effect. You know, they'll travel over a quarter in between covers from cover. But most of the time when they're out there feeding, you know, you just don't usually see them too very far. Um, they, I still remember we did some studies on putting feeders out, you know, how far from the edge can you get away to deer still utilize it. And I think the sweet spot was, you know, around 100, you know, 120 yards. After you start getting much further than that, the deer use just kind of goes down. Not that they won't use it. It's just the use kind of goes They down. get a little nervous. Yeah, it's a little bit because think about it, They got a, if something did. They did have to run away. They got longer to go. Yes. They got further to go to, to get to reach safety. So cover super important from that aspect for white-tailed deer around here in Texas, but it's mainly even more important for like the babies, the little fawns. Fawning cover is absolutely critical for fawns. Um, uh, me and Chancey used to hog hunt on a place that had a power line clearing going through it. Yeah. And and that was probably an ideal place for the deer to be. It was, it was a clearing pretty wide. Yeah. And it was about 70, 80, 100 yards wide. And, and brush on both sides mm -hmm. and you'd go down there in the in the evening now the hogs would never hardly be out there too much and we would go but there would be deer grazing out in that grass and that they spook and run right back to the woods oh yeah absolutely it was ideal you know the, the utility line company kind of maintains it or they do maintain they, it they keep they all the brush out that's perfect yeah but then and then the brush that gets cut it comes back with new growth and it new does and yeah. those deer in there eating that young growth and all that stuff coming back and then they got wood woody cover that they can run right into real fast so yeah that's it, what we talked about it increases more edge edge forming deer it, edge species that does that increases a lot of edge mm -hmm. yes. yes and so that's why in south texas you know they cut senderos through places for that reason yeah. right there that's a perfect to example see, of that to see and then it also attracts you know mm -hmm. and so so that kind of that covers cover i guess yeah that's basics are covered so we got one more and what are we left with jancy well yeah i mean if you think cover water and space so when we talk about space uh i guess depending on where you're at yeah and depending on your quality of habitat it kind of goes back to carrying capacity and uh so i know we're talking about deer but most wildlife don't like to be crowded and so space always refers to their arrangements of food water and shelter you know the interspersion how they are the better quality, the more that you have of that. The less food you have, the more space they need. Yeah, yeah, the less competition you get, you know. So competition for resources is a big thing. So all wildlife need a certain amount of space. And uh, they need a space requirements are often called home ranges. And um, although home ranges for white-tailed deer can overlap and even for other species, each animal occupies its own particular unique space. For white-tailed deer, you think about, I get people ask, well, how much acres do you need or how whatever, you know, just to give you some general rules of thumb, some stuff that's come out of uh, Dr. Fulbright's stuff, and Dr. Damaris's, you know, they were looking at home range of white-tailed deer in general. And it varies because of habitat. You can't really put a number on it. It's one of those things that truly depends. But in general, for a doe in Texas, between 200 and 350 acres, something like that. 250 to 300? Yeah, 200 for like a home range of a doe, which is basically most of the area she occupies in her life. Not to say they can't try 
let's travel further. Some home range estimates could be as little as 100, but I've seen some, you know, some home ranges were 1,500, depending on the amount of food. And a buck needs even more than that. Yeah, the bucks are generally double what a doe is, depending on the habitat. So, like, it's hard to say what's the home range of a white-tailed deer. Well, it depends. And I know wildlife biologists are notorious for saying it depends. Sure. But the truth is, it, it really does depend. Yeah, it yeah. depends on those four limiting factors, plus the other limiting factors, predation. You know, most time predation is not a problem for white-tailed deer in Texas if you've got cover requirements. But if you got degraded land and your place is overgrazed and you don't have any fawning cover, predation can be a big deal for white-tailed deer. Like in wild hogs. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Coyotes mainly. Coyotes yeah, yeah. and wildcats can see them better. You know, so when a mama, when she lays her babies, you know, twins are the rule. Every now and then she'll have triplets, but it's rare, but it happens. The twins are the rule after they get about two years old. When she puts them out there, she places them in different spots, you know, and that, that little baby phone has the ability to, number one, they're born with no scent, which is amazing. And they have the ability to lay absolutely 100% still, not move a muscle. They can lay absolutely still. And, and they never lose that ability. Even bucks, I've seen bucks that are like really fair or fit, whatever. They still have, as a mature deer, can go back to that lay down, lie absolutely motionless. But little fawns, they do that for the first, you know, few days, weeks of their life. And then they'll start up and going with mama a little more. But in those first few days, week or so, when she's like, she's never more than a hundred yards away. And most of the time she puts those little babies in fawning cover, which is kind of tall, mid thigh high grass, you know, yes. and then usually scattered trees. So you got some shade and some thermal cover in there to help regulate. And that's what they try selecting. And they're still going to have babies if there's no fawning cover. So if there's no fawning cover, they got to put them somewhere. And then that's where predation can really go up on fawns. Well, you know, because those first three days, that baby ain't going to run and cows can just. And so to tell this story, you know, speaking of that, about them laying these fawns in this, in this grass to, for cover, I guess you would say. I remember several years ago, we we had a hayfield down in a, in a creek bottom, which was, you know, kind of near water, a perfect habitat for deer. And we missed the whole first first cutting because it was too wet to cut it. So the ryegrass died. The blue stem and Johnson grass all came back. It got really tall, really thick. And I'll never forget cutting that hayfield. I, I literally never felt so bad in my life. You would, you would make a round around that field, and yeah. all of a sudden, you'd run right over a, a little fawn because – you can get right up on them. I mean, you could have that yeah. tractor run as loud as you wanted you know, to, make all move. the noise. You know, they just laid there, and you ran them right over with that hay cutter. So that is, the first few days, they will not move. They, yes. they rely on absolute stillness and camouflage and lack of no scent. You know, and and I don't want to, I don't want to uh, get too far ahead here. This is another topic too. But Jancy said that a doe doesn't lay twins in the same place. She'll lay them in two different places, and in that case. Yeah. Where they were all scattered through this hay field that you could not see. I mean, going as slow as you could possibly go. I mean, hollering, making whatever noise you wanted to. Yeah. They would not, I mean, not even like moving here. I mean, just like, just lay there. Yeah, that would have been probably late May or June. It, it was. was that was exactly yeah. when it was. Yeah. yeah. I'll never forget that well, they're year. They're little bitty. They just, yeah, they, they won't, you know, so like when you're cutting hay, you've always, all of us has run into that situation but if you see a fawn like that just knowing it's little bit and it's not running it's not abandoned it's not hurt mama is always within a hundred yards so just you know let it be it's fine because a lot of places and when they don't have cover or if there's a lot of competition there's certain areas of the county 
where they might have food, they might have cover, but they don't have fawning cover. And certain particular areas have good fawning cover. It might be 40 or 50 acres and it's fawning cover. Well, those will travel to those fawning covers just to have their baby. There's more in where there's, especially on drought years, if there's not just cover everywhere, fawning cover. Sometimes if there's not much cover, it's strange, but deer, uh, if you're in an urban environment, or even if you're around the house or something and live way out in the country, kind of like I do, it seems like they'll they'll put that phone by something. They'll put it by a tree. Or one time I had a doe that she kept her little phone by my wheelhouse. I don't know why. But that was what she chose. She chose to put it by that wheelhouse. And it's funny because in urban environments where there's no phone and cover, really, those does would put them by like a brick wall, something like that. It's funny. Or by like a little landscape plant, you know. They pick and choose their spots. Well, you know, and it, like you talked about earlier, the deer won't get very far from cover. And so when you're talking about space, yeah. if I've got 1,200 acres of, of a big of a big row crop field, it's going to take a lot of acres in order to hold to maintain a deer population. A popula on a population because there's no right. cover, because they, there's yeah. no water. So it, like, these four limiting four limiting factors, I guess, the, all of the other things have, uh, well, kind yeah. of kind of go into how much space they need. Yeah, so if they've got all of these other things in one small area right there. That's probably all they need. Yeah, they do if it's enough. Yes. You know, so, like with that said, here when you look at Milan County and habitat fragmentation, this is why these limiting factors are so important. And space requirements is so vitally important because. There's one population of deer in this, say, 1,500 acres. A lot of the research says you need around 1,500 to 2,000 acres to adequately, you know, manage a population of deer. And same thing for turkeys and quail, too, to, to manage on a population level. Because if you got a bunch of 40-acre tracks and 50-acre tracks and 100-acre tracks or 300-acre tracks all combined to make that 1,500 acres, well, some tracks only provide cover. Some tracks only provide fawning cover. Some tracks may not provide anything because it's Bermuda grass field may just, you know, provide some little uh, lagoon feeding, you know, at certain times of the year. Sure. Those deer are utilizing all those limiting factors. And that's when it's, that's when it's important for people to talk to each other. Yes. Talk to your neighbor, start wildlife management associations, because like the turkeys that you see on your property, that's eaten on your property. Well, they're going to go over to the neighbors and maybe roost. He might have the roost, you know, yeah, absolutely. You got the food source, or you've got the, 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 the brooding area. And somebody else has the water and somebody else has the water, especially in these landscapes. So, you know, the small guys, if we can try to manage to do everything, you know, and have that, it kind of will help, you know, and, and, all look, all and look at what your neighbors have. Okay. He's got the water. He's yeah. got the, he's got the cover. Mm -hmm. I've got the, the food sources, I guess you sure, would say. Like maybe food pot or something. You know? So, <laughs> And that's the kind of thing with deer and quail and all that stuff. You know, generally you can get food pretty easily. Like if you plant food plots, you know, you can get that in one growing season. You, absolutely. You know, you plant summer and winter food plots. You can even plant established native grasses, you know, for falling cover and let the brush. You can generally get that in, you know, three to five years. The cover and the water. is a different issue, you know, unless you put supplemental water out, which you can do guzzlers or dig a tank, you know, or sure. you know, do something like that. Put some type of water source out there. You're out and just you got a thousand acres of coastal Bermuda or a thousand acres of just open and scattered trees with none of those cover types. It's hard to to hold a good population of deer. I'm not saying they're not going to come through your place or utilize it in some way. Absolutely. Mostly what you have is open space with no cover. You know, there's certain things we need to address. You know, try to plant some cover, plant some rose. You know, there's lots of things you could do, but it just takes time. 
especially when we're talking about woody cover. Yes, and, and with the places getting smaller and smaller, coordination amongst people yeah. is also becoming more and more important, too. Yes, we need to talk with our neighbors, man. Yeah. Good, good communication, good relationships with our neighbors. Definitely look into wildlife, man. If, if you're interested in wildlife, and I'm guessing you are if you're listening to this, then you know, think about it. If you're a landowner, think about wildlife management. Yes, association. But the, the government will even give you money for it. They're, I mean, you can get a wildlife exemption now. Yes, yeah. you get a wildlife tax break, you know, and you can still run cattle on your property, but your the primary goal is no longer livestock production, it's wildlife production. And you can manage anything from a white-tailed deer, you know, given if you have enough acreage to realistically kind of manage for a white-tailed yes, population. Yes. But everybody has enough acres. It don't matter how much acres, but everybody's got enough acres to manage for lightning bug. Or, you know, grassland songbirds. Grassland songbirds are just getting hit so hard right now. And like all of our little sparrows and winter sparrows right now, you know, right now there's so much stuff we can be doing on our small properties right now, which make all the difference in the world for so many different species. I guess that kind of wraps up habitat. Habitat, well, that brushes that brushes the, That brushes the top of all those different things, I we guess you would say. An hour on each one of those things, Brad. Food, cover, water, and space. And hey, Jensen, in, in the future we probably will. Okay, yeah. But today, today, today we here. Hey, so guess how long we plan on talking about that for? Thirty minutes. That was supposed to be thirty minutes. Well, guess how long it's been, Jensen? One hour. One hour. But we cannot leave here today without talking about this. this so. Brad and Chansey only have three episodes now. Yeah. And it just so happens the third episode falls on the week of Christmas. Tis the season. So we can't leave here today without talking about... Something cool. Something cool. Something Christmas-wise. Something kids alike. Something Christmassy wildlifey, which I guess we have to talk about reindeer. Reindeer and caribou. Caribou. Yeah, same thing. And so, uh, you know... We call them them caribou in North America. They call them reindeer in Eurasia. And here's probably the reason for that. I'm, I'm sure some guy came up with the song... Rudolph the Red Nosed Caribou. And they're like, well, that don't sound right. That doesn't really got a job. I mean, we got this dang caribou with these reins on it. Let's let's call it a reindeer. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know where we need to probably look into that as to where that came from. But the rain. Santa's Elves made that song up, didn't they? (laughs) Sure. (laughs) So that's who who coined the term the reindeer. And I guess technically, North Pole is neither, not North America, it's not really Eurasia, is it? It's the North Pole. It is what it is, Chancey. This ain't a geography lesson, Chancey. We're not here to talk about it. Talk about earth science, buddy. We're talking about wildlife today. And more importantly, reindeer. Reindeer. You hear the Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer. And it's kind of cool because apparently a reindeer has a very unique nose in a way. They do, Brad. They do. They have like what's called, you know, a counter current uh, exchange system going on in their nose. And it helps them keep, helps them to, you know, regulate their temperature so they don't lose so much heat. Because believe it or not, they exist in really cold places. Yes, really cold. If you think of reindeer, they're up Alaska and in the Yukon or way north. Places I haven't spent much time about. So I don't know a whole lot about caribou other than they are fascinating, well-adapted critters. They're just amazing to read about. So their nose would get pretty dead gum cold up there. Mm-hmm. And their, their body temperature would get cold as well. But it's got they've got this heat exchange that happens inside their, their nose. Yeah. They've got like 30% like blood vessels inside their nose than what other deer do. Flow of blood in, in the direction that it flows, it keeps the, the blood going back to their heart warmer yeah so basically like our counter current exchange what's going on is you got 
arteries, taking blood from the arteries, which is warm. It just came take from, it the, from heart. the heart. Yeah, take it from the heart, which is warm, and you're going to the extremities, so your nose or your legs or something like that. And the arteries going down to the extremities get blood to it, so it doesn't die. But then the veins take the blood back to the heart. Correct. And these veins and these, uh, it's like a two-lane highway. Think of it that way. These arteries and veins lay side beside one another, and there's some counter. That's why they call it a counter exchange. There's some heat exchange going on there, so it's very efficient, you know, as far as a heat loss and maintaining maintaining heat. It keeps them warm. Keeps them keeps them warmer. Same thing like birds do the same thing with their legs. They're aquatic wetland birds that stand out in water in the wintertime. They have the same type system in their legs. You know, I've always wondered how they keep from freezing to death. Yeah, man. I mean, it's pretty amazing, actually. Yes, it really I is. It just the adapted the, the reindeer are adapted to a harsh environment you think about it. and that's another thing that's really cool about them is uh they're one of the only servants one of the only deer species that's basically cursorial like it's built for speed and running you know of course pronghorn run all the time but reindeer migrate like crazy and they're runners man they are runners and that's another thing that's neat about them is their babies the little caribou babies when they're born they're they're what's called precocial precocial just means you can hit the ground running kind of like a a chicken think about it you know when it hatches not very long they don't lay around like a whitetail for a few days yeah yeah no a caribou can start a little foam caribou or calf i guess is what it calls calf not a foam they're they're up something within minutes and they can be on their own within hours you know following mama and they're going whereas yes. whitetail deer they're putting them here and there and stashing them you know like i said they won't move at all they rely on stealth you know to try to avoid predators whereas little caribou he's up and rolling man following mama and her and you know another neat while we're talking about the adaptations their hooves actually expand yes i heard in the that. snow yes so like snowshoes like snowshoes yeah. yes and once all that melts and goes away they shrink back down and get smaller uh, so how cool is a reindeer way cool man i mean it is but another thing that's cool about them they're the only deer in north america the the, the, the cows the females have antlers that they do. I didn't even think yeah, about that. That's really cool. And what's amazing about them is we'll talk about it's probably mostly for protection. Protection, but then also I've read some studies that you know they utilize in the wintertime as a food source. Now, not as a food source, but to dig through the snow, help dig through the snow so they'll paw and then also use that because they have oh, like, to dig. dig like that paddle that's on the front of a caribou. You know, some of them suggest you know they're moving snow out of it to help get, which is amazing because. You know, the males have antlers, too, and we know that the photo period works so much with the... With the hormones Yeah, and with animals, the hormones yes. and the antlers, but the females drop at different times in the males. That's is, odd. That blows my mind, but man. Maybe, but maybe because they need them a little longer well, to yeah, protect their babies. Yeah, I think so, and environmental factors are, you know, I mean, because I, I think I read somewhere that the does, or I'm sorry, the cow caribou, they drop their antlers right after their babies are born, you know. But during, oh, they do drop them, or maybe right. they start growing them. They start growing them right in. Boy, that's odd. How how cool is nature? Yeah, I know it. So that's usually in the spring, but the males they drop usually in the winter, like in fall, is what I read. So Very interesting to me. So that tells you, yes, photo period one hundred percent critical. But there's a lot of environmental factors too that take into play. And, and one other cool thing about it is, is that they they're one of the only. The deer that are, have been domesticated, yeah. I guess you would say. Yeah, domesticated up in like Norway and. Wales. I think you've been to petting zoos before, and they all have a reindeer. None <laughs> yeah. of them, have, none yeah. of them really have a white-tailed buck. Deer. No, you don't. No, they sure don't. But you know, I mean, the nomadic people, like I don't know, I should know, but 
whatever over there in Eurasia, the nomadic people with the reindeer, they domesticate them and they even milk them, you know, and use, utilize their milk, they utilize everything, eat them, food. Then why on earth, Chancy, do we leave milk out for Santa if he's got reindeer to milk? I mean, <laughs> well, that's I it. You, that's you, it. All, those, not all those reindeer are males. Oh, <laughs> I don't think there's any is cow. Dan, is Dancer a male? Maybe he is. Yeah, I don't yeah. know if there's any cow reindeer or not. So yeah, That's why he wants milk. Maybe so. Or, or keep <laughs> leaving the milk yeah, out yeah. just in case. Yeah. 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 He, we're probably so busy he ain't got time to milk the reindeer. Maybe that's what it is. Yeah. yeah. I'm sure milking reindeer He's takes He's got a quiet. lot of stops in one night. <laughs> he does. Yeah. He's like, God damn, I only had some reindeer milk yeah. right about now. Yeah. I've never <laughs> milked a reindeer, but I imagine the teats aren't quite as big as like a cow. So that's all. That's all another episode, <laughs> yeah. Chancy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So reindeer milking, yeah, it's probably quite the sport. But uh, uh, so, Chancy, one more thing I want to cover before we leave Caribou. Just want to say this. Only take a second. Uh, in 1921, <laughs> Olaus Murray, who was uh, an incredible wildlife biologist back in the day, um, he was studying. He's like I think the father of elk. He was a big elk biologist and deer biologist, but he was in Alaska trying to do a census on um, caribou. And uh, what year was this? This was in 1921. So Holy 1921, cow. I think he was in Alaska somewhere, probably around Mount McKinley. I'm not sure exactly where. I know he was up in that area in Alaska. And 20 days, he one herd, it took 20 days to pass. And during those 20 days, the first eight days, he counted 1,500 caribou passed each day. 1,500. 1500. And then in the remaining 12 days, it came 100 came each day. And uh, that was in 1921, and he estimated that population then to be 568,000 animals. In one herd. In one herd. took 20 days to pass. Wow. Man. Now, wow. Can you imagine in 1921 yeah. in the cold, yeah. counting 1,500 yeah. reindeer a day? You know, uh, he probably. You know, Goodwill, he miscounted or fell asleep. But, but that's what he said, too. He goes, hey, my estimate's probably, he goes, it could have been closer to a million. Because you, know? yeah. I mean, you know how hard it is just to count. You know, cattle with only a herd of cows when there's 30 and they're out there traveling and moving. You're trying to count. I've tried to count cows before, like a herd of 25 of them. And you get to like three, you're like, was that three or was that five? What's great about it, that's why you usually, if you have your buddy out there, you know, whoever feeding with you, you all, you you, you both count. That's that's right. You always get different numbers. (laughs) (laughs) I counted 19. I got 21. What is this guy's name? And that did this? Oh, Laos Murray. Murray? Yeah, he and, mm-hmm. You know, Murray, he probably had his buddy Steve over there with him. And he's like, Steve, I got 1,500. I mean, you get, <laughs> yeah. I got 365. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, oh, somebody, Steve was dropping the ball. Hey, hey, but hey, he wrote it down, and so it's probably right. We'll go with that. Yeah, no, I believe it. When you look at today, you know, some of the documentaries on caribou, when they fly over, especially with Planet Earth now, I don't know if y'all seen that documentary, Planet Earth. The, the technology so much they can put videos above those herds and you really can't and it's just amazing to look at i mean there's no other migration on earth that takes place like that other than the wildebeest in africa yes you know, the bison used to do that as well that was a magnificent ecosystem but unfortunately we don't have that anymore but the caribou migration in itself from the cabin grounds and also seasonally it's just a fascinating thing to, to learn about and even read about. And I think I read that global warming is, or the changing of the temperatures is affecting their migration, too. Yes, I've read that, too, and their calving grounds and everything. Uh, I guess that kind of 
Wraps up this episode, Chancy. Yes, that does. It was <laughs> this thirty-minute episode we had planned for. Thirty-minute episode. It went to what an hour and ten. Yeah, exactly an hour and ten right now, Chancy. But that's okay. Yes, it is. That was fun talking to you, Brad. And man, it's fixing to be Christmas. So we wish each and every one of y'all very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Yes, absolutely. I, we may we may not actually with all that going on in, in a week. Yes, sir. It's gonna be hard time. It's gonna be hard to find time to get that done, but. Again, we enjoyed it, and I, man, we're up to a lot of listeners already. Oh, that's uh, great. Over two episodes. Hey, so. Didn't you say that there was a listener in Moscow or something? Uh, yes, Russia, that's Germany. That's, it might have been Vladimir Putin. Listen, I heard he liked to hunt and fish. Well, he might, and now we give him a little reindeer. information about reindeer. Yeah, so, you know, now. There you go, Mr. Putin. You can manage your reindeer herd. <laughs> yeah, because I'm sure they knew none of that about reindeer. <laughs> yeah, no, no. That's probably, only in the backyard. <laughs> that's probably the first time hearing any of that. But anyways, guys, it was good talking to you all again. We appreciate all your support, all the positive feedback we've gotten on Facebook, text messages, phone calls. And to all the people we don't know who are listening, we appreciate y'all too. Absolutely. And we look forward to doing this again for y'all uh, as long as you keep listening. But uh, This is Brad and Chancey signing off, I guess, until next time. So Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Goodbye, y'all. Merry Christmas.